0: Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're gonna be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they wanna celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, Rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com dot Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live.
1: Is it the mark or is it the marketing? because you can look at something like the Nike swoosh, which is ubiquitous, but if you turn that logo upside down, it's actually the Newport cigarettes logo. And if you turn it on its side, it is the logo for Capital One Bank. There needs to be a reason that you're directing the money in certain areas, and it still has to have something that will resonate deeply with people in, in a very human way and it's not just about the money or the mark. It's it's really a combination. So it makes me really, really happy when I see that the work that I contributed to has that much resonance with people.
0: What's up everybody and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is Debbie Millman. I am so pumped to have her on the show today. She is an absolute icon in the design worlds. When Burger King needed a new logo in the 90s, they called her. When Hillary Clinton needed a campaign button, she called her. And when she decided to get hitched, Gloria Steinem is the one who's gonna do the officiating. I can go on and on about how many amazing things I learned in this episode or how much I love her and what she does and her life. It was Fantastic! We covered a lot of grounds from how to think about design to what's going on today politically. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. So I'm going to stop talking, and I'm going to let Debbie do the talking from here. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Debbie Millman. Debbie welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. It's great to be here. I am beyond excited to have you here because you are an absolute freaking legend in your fields. You are, you know, you are, you are, and, and we can all learn so much from your experience. So honestly, from the bottom of my heart, this really meant a lot to me that you said yes. So thank you for taking the time.
1: Thank you, Rob. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Thank you. You're so welcome. Okay. So we're going to start with a quick fun fact. We both okay. share the fact that we were born in Brooklyn huh. and moved to Queens. I'm a Regal Park guy living in Hermosa Beach, California now, and you are a Howard Beach, originally girl. And if memory serves, that is John Gotti Is that right?
1: Um, I believe so. I believe so. Well done.
0: Yeah, I th- I think so. I remember it's all the uh, all the Italian kids. When I used to date the Italian girls, I was in like, you know, this Rigo Park area and I'd take the Q11 bus and it would take me to Howard Beach and I'd date all the Italian girls in that area. Nice.
1: I had an aunt that lived in uh, Rigo Park, Aunt Ida.
0: Aunt Ida. So, you've lived in almost every borough for a variety of reasons. Which one do you feel has most defined you?
1: Oh, Manhattan. Manhattan, for sure. Okay.
0: Yeah, I've lived in Manhattan since
1: 1983. Yep. Never lived anywhere else except this year when I spent six months in Los Angeles with my wife. So, that was the first time I'd ever spent that much time outside of New York in my entire life.
0: And you know, it's funny, my dad used to say when you leave New York you're camping out. How did you like Los Angeles being such a diehard New Yorker?
1: Well, it took me a little bit of a little bit of time to get used to it for the first month I was super homesick. But now that I'm back, New York isn't I mean New York will always be New York, but the the spirit of New York that I was used to every day, walking everywhere, going places every day, theater, opera, sports, like all of those things aren't really the same anymore. So right now, I'm just basically housebound with an occasional foray to the corner for a coffee or the supermarket. But, you know, nobody's really getting together. People aren't going to restaurants. They're you know, all the things that make New York, New York are a bit on pause. So one of the nice things about being in Los Angeles was having a car and being able to go to the beach, being able to go for a ride. I also started gardening while I was there and created my first ever vegetable garden. So for anybody that knows me really well that might be listening to this, they're probably like on the floor just <laughs> in- <laughs> at not ever able to envision this. But but yeah, my life really fundamentally changed this year in terms of so many things and I me mean, getting married, the location that I was living in. But New York will always be New York and I'll always be a New Yorker and I'll always be a diehard New Yorker no matter what state the city is in.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, the the, the top two things um, that I read that uh, Gallup did some research on that people are doing differently during COVID. Uh, the first is a vegetable garden and the second is making sourdough bread. Isn't that interesting? interesting. Yeah. Sourdough well, bread.
1: I also got a puppy. <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, such a cliche. I'm such a cliche because apparently everybody's getting puppies as well. But I had had dogs... And they both, unfortunately, passed away in 2018, six weeks apart. And that was really traumatic for me. And I had had them for 16 years. So yeah. it took a while to feel like I was up for getting a new puppy. Um, and Roxanne, my wife, got me a puppy for my birthday. So
0: that's so awesome. What'd you get? What kind?
1: In the last two weeks.
0: <laughs> what kind of puppy did you get?
1: A Maltipoo.
0: That's what I have.
1: Tell me everything about
0: Poos. okay hold on one second she can you say hi to debbie say hi to debbie <laughs> she's adorable they how old are uh,
1: is
0: she? uh she's eleven and how big is she uh fifteen pounds
1: and is she is that
0: normal for the breed yeah fifteen twenty depends on how much pasta you give them or you know, you know what I mean? So, and how much exercise they get, obviously, but they're, uh, they're amazing dogs, really, really smart. And, you know, it's the only dog I would ever have.
1: And did you have her from a puppy?
0: Yeah. Yeah. She was like less than a week old. (gasps) (laughs) I'll send you a picture. She was like that big. We
1: got ours when he was 10 and a half months. So, I mean, 10 and a half weeks, 10 and a half weeks.
0: I love it. You know, as a parent of two girls, not puppies, but two girls, you can almost see at a young age how they might turn out. Could you tell us the story of drawing a picture at eight years old of the streets of Manhattan and how that drawing may have foretold your future?
1: Okay. This is uh, sort of a fun history lesson of my life. My mother moved to Florida many years ago and she was downsizing and she gave me a box of ephemera that she found in her basement that was mine. And it included, you know, the book reports, the report cards, the usual elementary school and junior high school fodder. And in it was a folded up drawing that I had done in oil pastel And when I opened it up, I realized, first of all, I was very impressed with my skill at eight years old, (laughs) if I must say so myself. I had drawn a scene that while initially just looked fairly benign, as I examined it, I sort of had an epiphany and I drew a, a street scene in New York City, but in Manhattan. And at that point in my life, I had only lived in Brooklyn for the first two years of my life. So no memory of that. And then Howard B. Queens. My dad worked in a pharmacy on 7th Avenue in the low 50s called City Drug. And I would occasionally visit him there. And our dentist was around the corner from his store, Dr. Balban. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was my only experience of Manhattan. I, you know, we didn't go to Radio City or any of those other things. And I certainly didn't go there for weekend jaunts, but I drew this, the city scene and there were buildings and there were people walking on the sidewalk. And I think that I was in the center with my mother and it was a sort of an adult figure wearing a, a very popular Barbie outfit at the time, Tangerine Dream. And I'm holding her hand. And then there are buildings. And on the buildings, the cleaners says cleaners. There's a bank and it's called bank. (laughs) There's a taxi. It's labeled taxi. And then there's a delivery truck. And on the delivery truck, it says potato chips. But right above potato chips, it says Lays. And I drew the logo. That's amazing.
0: Like that's so bizarre. As we get into this, people will understand why this is crazy. I mean, this is just, this is, this is so interesting to me. I have a 22 year old daughter and I have a six year old uh, daughter, quite a stretch. And, you know, there are certain things that I can see that they have a knack for. And so Mm -hmm. when I heard that story, I was like, wow, that's really, really interesting. So I want to take you back to the late nineties and working for Hot 97 Radio You were asked to create a logo for their new hip hop station. And, you know, my judgment here, you were probably not 100 percent up on the nuances of hip hop culture. How do you even begin designing something like that if you're not deeply connected to it?
1: Interesting story. I was hired by Rocco McRae, who was then the promotion director for Hot 97, and he was working for Judy Ellis, who was the general manager. And initially, the brief was not to redesign the identity. So in fact, there there's a couple of places online that say that I created the the first round of the Hot 97 logo, the redesign. And I didn't, that was Say Adams. So Rocco worked with Say to develop this new identity. It was sort of black and white and very scratchy, very kind of late eighties, early nineties. And what happened was Judy Ellis was interested in repositioning the radio station. And that's really where I came in. And it was her belief that the world was ready and needed hip hop radio station. There hadn't been any at that time up until the early 90s. And she wanted to create the first one. At the time, Hot 97 was a dance music radio station. And so she was sure that the dance music radio station could make a transition to a hip hop station. The station didn't have a lot of money, and there really wasn't a strong belief that something like this could happen. And so, what we did was Rock o Judy, a man named Johan Vipper, who was the who was my partner in crime at the time in the creative area, and say um, say did the logo, and we had an open call. And I believe it was at the Palladium. I don't, I I might have the the place wrong, but we had an open call on the radio to have people come and be models in this new radio station that we were creating. And we got actually Angie Martinez, who was then Judy Ellis's assistant, who then became a very, very well-known DJ on Hot 97. She was part of that original casting. And so we had all sorts of listeners, um, different sizes, different ages, different races, different bodies, every, everything that we, can, we could do to show the, the best and, and most diverse group of people that were listening to the station. And they, they were dancing. And at that point, we started to move the tagline into um, Hot 97, hip hop. And that was when it started to first change, but it wasn't the full-on change yet. It was just the beginning of a morphing to that. And so for me, it really wasn't about, you know, I don't know that much about hip hop and how do I create something authentic? For me, it was listening to my clients at the time who were interested in doing this and then helping them make that repositioning. And so the idea that we had featuring real people, real listeners, real people that worked at the station, that was that was what helped. And then as we started to get our foothold in changing the format to hip hop and R&B, then we started to engage the artists that we were playing on the radio station. So Notorious B.I.G. and Sean Combs, who was at that point Puffy and then Puff Daddy, the Fugees, uh, Lauren Hill, um, Brandy, um, all of these artists, Little Kim. We used the actual artists to and took original photography, and then let them represent the station in as an authentic manner as possible. It was an incredible time. So I very quickly learned a lot about hip hop. And what's interesting, you know, having a black wife every now and then hip hop, an old school hip hop song will come on the radio and I'll start singing along. I know every word and she's like, what?
0: (laughs) So you know it and she doesn't. No, she knows it too, but she's always she's she's just in shock that you know it.
1: Yeah, that, you know, I'm this, like, white Jewish girl from Long Island, you know, because I did spend years on Long Island as well, you know, knowing the song to, knowing the, the lyrics to, you know, every Notorious B.I.G. song
0: or something like that. That's so funny. I think, I think Jay-Z, I think the, uh, Jay-Z and Eminem were talking once uh, in some interview. Oh, we interview. did G with Eminem also, which was amazing. Oh, I bet that was incredible. Yeah, incredible. And they, they were saying, like, their listenership crosses, like... Jay-Z has more white listeners and Eminem has more black listeners. It's really interesting, it's, it's really interesting how they, they speak to the different uh, uh, demographics. I'd like to talk a bit about uh, Burger King um, because you are certainly famously known for that. You worked a redesign of Burger King's logo. When you were when you're shifting somebody's brands to a new look and a new feel, what sorts of things are important for you to understand in advance of that?
1: Why? Why does this company want to do this? And I did the initially the, the first round of Hot 97 work I did on my own, the second round of Hot 97 work I did at Sterling Brands when I, when I started to work there and ultimately run the design division. And the work at Burger King was also at Sterling. So very proud work representing the company that that I helped build and still love. So with Burger King, it was really, you know, why do you want to do this? Why do you need to do this? You know, why does the world need another redesigned fast food restaurant? And my feeling is that every redesign needs to signify some sort of change that is being marked by this redesign. If it's an internally driven change, then consumers are going to be super confused about why you're doing something, why you need to do it. And it really needs to signify some bigger change that the logo is representative of. And in the case of Burger King, it was redesigned stores. So Fitch did a redesign on the architecture of all the stores globally. And so it made sense at that point to essentially polish up the logo because that was signifying that the restaurants were, had a new look you know, from the top down, so to speak.
0: That's interesting. And when you ask the why question, like, I guess, I guess my question is how much time do you spend in the psychographics, if I'm using that word correctly, in sort of like, you know, when when I think about a logo, I I just get this image of, you know, the Starbucks logo or something, this little small, tiny thing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think about somebody sitting there and saying, Why? is the mobile logo or the Exxon logo or the Starbucks logo or the Burger King logo logo designed like this. Is that a big chunk of what your discussions are like prior to doing it, like getting into that DNA before you even, you know, take a paintbrush to it?
1: Oh, of course. You have to understand the origin story and there is an origin story for every identity, but that origin story is only brought to life by marketing. You know, I, I often ask, or, or I often ask my clients, is it the mark or is it the marketing? Because you can look at something like the Nike swoosh, which is ubiquitous and probably known globally by, by nearly everyone. But if you turn that logo upside down, it's actually the Newport cigarettes logo. And if you turn it on its side, it is the logo for Capital One Bank. <laughs> I, see, I see. You already looking. <laughs> so, no, I'm
0: I'm writing this down because I don't want to forget this because I'm gonna I'm using this in my intro because that is fascinating to me. Yeah. The the Newport cigarettes and the Capital One, if you just invert invert rotate,
1: it's all this sort of same swooshy shape. So if if Nike hadn't put you know 100 million dollars of marketing behind it every year would it be as ubiquitous? Would it be as much an identifier of that brand? You know, in fact, when Phil Knight saw it, I I, I talk about this in my TED Talk, he saw it and he was like, well, I don't love it, but I think it'll grow on me. (laughs) (laughs) So it grew on him, all right.
0: Um, With a hundred million dollars of budget behind him, it probably grows pretty easily.
1: Well, there still has to be a cohesive plan around that you can't just throw money at a refrigerator and hope that some of it will stick there needs to be a reason that you're directing the money in certain areas and it still has to have something that will resonate deeply with people in in a very human way and it's not just about the money or the mark it's it's really a combination
0: has there been something that you've done that was a flop And you look back and you're like, I don't know why this thing flopped. Like it's got all of the right components, but it just didn't work. And I don't know why.
1: It's so funny. That reminds me of Cher being asked the question, what is your biggest song regret? And she's like- (laughs) I don't ever understand. Not that I'm sure, but she I, she very famously said, you know, she never understood why her why the song "Walking in Memphis," which she recorded, didn't become a big hit. It ultimately became a big hit for others, but it yeah. never became a big hit for her. And by all by all intensive purposes, it should have, right? It's a great song. She did great sure. work. But in terms of of timing, I think the biggest failure was work that I did in the late 90s mid to late 90s on Snapple mm-hmm. and we were super excited about the project you know it's a huge brand it had a million flavors and it's a really really big job i was a big snapple fan at the time and we we did something that was just way too modern um, it had a big silver band on the package we sharpened the edges of the S and Snapple. So the, the top ascend, the, the little tail on the top of the S is something that is very sharp. And I softened it without telling them. I just wanted to see if they'd notice it. So it looked a little bit more swirly like a snake. Um, and they hated it and didn't go with it. But I thought it just looked much better. It was much more symmetrical. However, that it was a real failure, super failure.
0: Is there one conversely where you're like they want it, but I don't think it's gonna work and it did?
1: Well, I wouldn't say that they wanted and and it did. I, I was really surprised by the response, the Tropicana redesign when consumers were just like insane and and hating the package that had gone to market and saying. And demanding the old pack back. I mean, I remember talking to Paula Cher about it, and she's like, "It's a nice pack, but it's not that nice." You know, <laughs> it's typical Paula. And and in fact, she was more concerned at the time that acquiescing and bringing back the package was going to be bad for design because it was going to make clients be less be less willing to take a risk because if consumers had that outcry and you and because they because they, Pepsi Cola, which owns Tropicana, brought the pack back so soon that it was going to show other potential clients when their redesign doesn't always work to to give in to defeat as opposed to stand and hold your ground. And, you know, there are companies now that do stand and hold their ground. Almost every logo now that's redesigned is met with wrath and hatred. But my feeling is, that if you keep it out long enough, people will become accustomed to it. The Airbnb logo is a great example where when it first came out, people thought it looked like female genitalia or male genitalia. And those two genitalias look different. So, you know, how much do you listen to the outrage when now almost any change is met with outrage? So I was surprised, but I'm still, you know, here it is now almost 20 years later since that outrage first happened. And Tropicana, that package is still the package that we designed over 20 years ago. So it makes me really, really happy when I see that the work that I contributed to has that much resonance with people that they don't actually want it ever to
0: change. It's interesting. Now it's becoming, instead of new, now it's becoming sort of iconic and legendary as time passes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's, really cool. I want to ask you something that is probably a little bit out of your area of expertise, but I'm curious about your thoughts. And that is, do you remember when Coca-Cola changed their formula? Oh yeah. And people went apeshit, right? You remember that? I do. What is your comments at all on that? In other words, was it marketing? Did somebody screw up? Was it intentional? Like, what do you think knowing what you know now was going on at that time?
1: Well, I know a lot about what happened. I ended up working at the agency that did that redesign and worked on the reformulation, but I didn't get there until after it had happened. It's a very, very interesting story. This is something that was based on, first of all, it wasn't intentional. They didn't do this so that there would be this outcry and people would rediscover how much they liked classic Coke. This was done because Coca-Cola was losing some market share to Pepsi-Cola. And Pepsi-Cola had a slightly sweeter formula. And so Coca-Cola thought well, if we're losing market share to a slightly sweeter formula, maybe we should have a slightly sweeter formula too. Now, they did a tremendous amount of market research on this, just oodles and oodles of market research. But what they did was primarily do blind taste testing. So giving consumers two beverages to taste, not with association with any brand or logo. And so when they did the blind taste tests, people overwhelmingly liked the sweeter version. So that gave Coca-Cola the courage and the confidence to make that change. But there's so much value to the intangible assets of a brand beyond flavor and form that they didn't understand the relationship that people had to the brand. And therefore, when it was changed, people went just ballistic. I remember my dad at the time was a huge Coca-Cola fan. He was so worried about this happening. He went and hoarded cases (laughs) of coca-cola in our basement because that's how much he loved coca-cola
0: i mean it became a lesson for people in the future didn't it
1: oh yeah it became a huge lesson but it's not necessarily the market research that led them astray it was the way in which the market research was conducted because you can look at and i've studied this a great deal you can look at very robust market research, giving you very specific direction on how to move a brand and find out that it's pretty much horseshit. That yeah. consumers don't want what they've told you they think you are asking them to tell you. So there's a, a great case of robust market research, utter failure as, as a brand, where market research said, this is going to be a huge success. And then you have something like absolute vodka. Absolute vodka was tested prior to being launched. And consumers were like what's with this bottle? They didn't they didn't understand it, they didn't like it, they didn't think that it was something that was interesting. They didn't people didn't want a, a vodka from Sweden. But Michelle LaRue, who was then the brand manager, decided to launch it anyway. And that bottle is now one of the most iconic bottles in all of beverage history. In fact, it's one of the longest running ad campaigns of our time. So there's an example where market research said, "Mm, this is going to be a failure, but launched anyway and was a super, super success. So you can't always rely on market research because you can't always rely on human Humans being consistent and humans telling you the truth, and humans not necessarily knowing what they need as opposed to what they want.
0: Yeah. It's interesting our our uh, our, our mutual friend uh, Tim Ferriss, talks about focus groups, and he says Unt- until you do a focus group and you pull up after the focus group meeting is over with your car and uh, pop your trunk open and say, "Do you want to buy one?" you don't really know whether or not they're telling you the truth, you know so
1: I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of focus groups. There's a very strong group dynamic that occurs. There's there are always the people pleasers that want to get along with everybody and do what everybody else does. There's always the archetypal rebel who just wants to be cantankerous and be be um, vehemently opposed to whatever it is you're doing. Then there are the profess- professional focus group attendees who make a living attending <laughs> focus groups. Right. So it's really it's a very slippery slope. Focus groups are are really problematic. I'm much more interested in ethnographic research where you're actually living with somebody and watching them and observing them because common vocabulary does not always equate with common behavior. I remember being on an ethnographic research study and we were doing, we were trying to understand people's um, relationship to health food. And I remember walking into somebody's kitchen and a woman telling me how involved with fitness she was and how she really cared about her body and really only wanted to eat healthy and natural. And then, you know, we asked to see her cabinets and her refrigerator and her pantry. And, you know, it was full of things like healthy choice and lean cuisine and Diet Pepsi. And those, you know, that was her idea of healthy. And so we all have our own definitions and interpretations of what it means to live a certain kind of life. And that has to be taken into account when working on any brand and doing any kind of market research study.
0: Yeah, you must have did the ethnographic research on my mother because that's exactly – every time I talk to her, it's, it's like, well, you know I eat good. And I'm like, <laughs> I've seen your cabinets. You right. It's a, right. It's a giant neurotoxin waiting to happen. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. Switching gears, I want to talk to you about Hillary Clinton's campaign. Can you tell us how you found yourself designing, I believe, her campaign button?
1: <laughs> well, um, Jennifer uh, Kynan, who worked and still works Uh, at her own agency with her business partner, Bobby Martin, they have a business called uh, Champions Design. At the time it was called Original Champions of Design, but they changed it recently. She uh, took a leave of absence at Champions to go and work for Hillary Clinton as her design director. And because of our relationship in the branding community, she also uh, does mentoring with my grad students at the School of Visual Arts and our friendship, she asked me if I'd be interested in designing buttons. And, and so I did. I designed buttons for Hillary. I've actually done quite a lot of work for the Biden campaign in the last few months. Much, actually, much more work for the Biden campaign than I did for the, the Hillary Clinton campaign. I gave them some advice on, on positioning and graphics in addition to uh, working on the campaign buttons, but with the Biden campaign, I've actually done quite a lot more.
0: And how have you enjoyed working on the Biden campaign? I mean, not that her campaign was not certainly heated because it was, but this one is like nothing I've ever seen. Like, what is it like being even sort of like tangentially involved in this?
1: Well, Rob... Uh, I, you know, I don't know when this is going to air. I'm going to assume given where are four days before the election. It'll be after. Yeah, it'll be after. after. Um, yesterday I wrote on Twitter that I'm suffering from pre-election stress disorder. And I really am. It started, it, I really started to become affected by the the world at large and what was happening back in March. You know, the the perfect storm of, The election, the pandemic, the civil unrest, the police killings of Black people, it just became so incredibly overwhelming. I needed to start wearing a mouth guard because I was just destroying my teeth at night while I was sleeping. I was so full of anxiety and I've never actually felt so worried about the future so unsure of what's going to come, so demoralized by what has happened, and I just am holding on to the slim hope of the arc of justice bending in the direction that we needed to, because frankly, I don't know what we're going to do if if it doesn't. I think we're going to see. Civil unrest, unlike anything we've seen since the Civil War, yeah, and, and I and I really truly feel that democracy will have failed. So I think there's a lot writing on this. I am, I am, obsessed and consumed by what is happening right now.
0: Yeah, we. I think. Uh, I mean, certainly, that was beautifully said. And I think we are. We are all going through this as well. I've literally had to work with a therapist because I was waking up at three o'clock in the morning with panic attacks. Like I was asleep, and I just get up at three a.m. My heart pounding out of my chest. Feel like I've, and I have no history of anything like this. It is just this never-ending situation that just, it's like, it's just not going away. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm finding myself in just such a weird state. Like, uh, we were, we were at dinner the other night here in LA and I live in Hermosa and we have mask police that are walking around and they go in threes and they just stop you. And if you don't have a mask on, they write you a ticket. And it's like, I'm getting this sort of like flashes of like North Korea. And, you know, like it's just, so, it, it, I mean, I'm 54. I've never, ever seen anything like this in my life. I mean, so all, all we can do is is pray that, uh, you know, this changes. I, I, hope, I hope this is going to be better than it has been. Let's put it that way.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I really am so scared. I've never felt like this before,
0: Rob. I've never felt so scared. I know. I know. Well, we got to put some, uh, some positive energy out into the world hopefully we'll change some, uh, I mean, that's
1: really the only thing that's helping is actually acting and doing and mobilizing and putting out whatever I can put out there to encourage people to vote and to think about the ramifications of our planet. If we can't get this one, right?
0: I hope we do. You're extraordinarily articulate, you're extraordinarily gifted at what you do. Where do you think that comes from? In other words, if I, you know, if I met, you know, the, the 20-year-old Debbie Millman, would she be different? Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, she'd be very different. Well, thank you for those very kind words. I'm yeah. I'm blushing and flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> The 20-year-old Debbie, well, you know, I've been in therapy now for 30 years. So Mm -hmm. actually one year more than half my life. So I think that the 20-year-old Debbie would probably still have at her core the optimism and hope and drive and ambition, but she would be much more insecure and a lot more confused and a lot more self-destructive. And a lot more caught up in the, the trauma of the previous 20 years, which was still super fresh and really unexamined. And so that would be a big part of, of what you'd pick up on.
0: Yeah. You got to do the work, don't you? Yeah. You stepped into uh, the world of podcasting on your own here with your Design Matters show, which yeah. now... Drum roll, please! Has surpassed five million downloads. Congratulations!
1: Well, that's a year. I mean, it's been millions and millions at this point. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I, we're getting in about half a million downloads a month at this oh. point. But that's things like you know Tim Ferriss' or the TED Radio Hour. You know, those are small numbers compared, but it's still numbers that I'm really, really,
0: really proud of. You should be. Who the heck can compare themselves to Tim Ferriss? He's a he's a, he does the work of ten men. He's unbelievable. What was the goal with the podcast when you started, and how has that evolved? Well,
1: the goal with the podcast was to try to bring his creativity that I had felt prior to working in branding. And prior to working in branding, I had been kind of unsuccessful at anything. And I just sort of went from thing to thing, hoping and sort of praying that I would find my way. (laughs) And I hit branding, which was quite by accident. I found out very quickly that I did have a, a natural ability to it. I don't know if it was because I had spent years working in my father's pharmacy as I was growing up and being in contact with people that were constantly buying things for themselves or their families and talking to my dad about what kind of drugs they needed to get or what type of remedies they needed. So I had that experience. And when I went into branding, suddenly it felt very natural. I was very good at it very quickly. And it was the first time in my life. And here I am in my mid early to mid thirties that I was actually ever good at anything. And so at that point, I, Stopped doing anything I wasn't good at and just put all my energy into doing the one thing I was good at. And that worked for a really long time, over a decade. And then I started to feel like my creative spirit was dying. And I wanted to try to get back to doing something that was self-generated, that didn't have a PL and l associated to it, that it didn't, I didn't have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. And so I was offered an opportunity with voice America business network. They called called me and asked me if I'd be interested in creating an online radio show. And I thought they were offering me a job, but they weren't, they were actually offering me an opportunity to pay them to produce a a show for me. But again, at the time I was, you know, double income, no kids and felt like this would be an interesting way to try my hand at something that was creative that I could have a little bit more freedom with and and no client. And so I decided to do that and I did it and I paid to have it done for four years. I did 100 episodes with Voice America. And then I was asked by the late great Bill Drentel to bring the show to Design Observer, but with a proviso that I improved the sound quality and so I, he helped me find a producer, Curtis Fox, who I started working with in 2009. We've been working together ever since. And then just recently, I joined the TED Audio Collective. So the TED folks, the TED folks that uh, run and own the TED conference have started a podcast network. And so Design Matters is part of that inaugural class of podcasts that have joined the Ted
0: Ted group. So come on. How cool is that? It's really cool. I mean, that's crazy. That is so crazy. (laughs) It is. is, It is.
1: It's, it's surreal.
0: Have you seen this story with uh, Joe Rogan going over to Spotify? Have you heard about it?
1: I've heard about it, but I don't know too many of the details. Can you share them with me?
0: 150 million. If you go to Spotify, can you imagine? That's a hundred. It's a, it's the highest ever for a podcast. I mean, that's that is how big podcasting is getting right now. Yeah, who would have it's thought? It's who would crazy? have thought?
1: When I started it. There was not even a podcast section on iTunes. Uh, my friend Brian Gomez Palacio was frustrated by the fact that my show on Voice America was broadcast live and then rerun at some you know middle of the at middle of the night time slot. And so, unless she heard it live at that one time, she couldn't. She couldn't listen. It was so. She's like, "Why don't you upload it to iTunes? Because this way, like an indie musician, I can just download it when I want." And so that's what I did. And then when the podcast section started, it was part of that. I remember there being a top 100 podcast list and mine was like 85, but I think there were like 105 podcasts. So yeah, there's only a handful of podcasts now, probably less than 10, maybe even less than five that are still been continuously broadcasting since 2004, 2005
0: fascinating. Okay. As we, uh, as we wrap, I'm going to, I'm going to go around to some questions. Some of them may be weird, but before I get into the weird questions, I want to ask you, you mentioned that you recently were married to a gal. I believe her name is Roxanne. Is that right?
1: Roxanne Gay.
0: All right. And because of this pandemic, you wanted to have a more proper reception. So you're going to hold it off till 2021.
1: We hope What's so. Yeah.
0: We hope so. Fingers crossed. And you want to have, rumor has it, and I I bet that this is already locked down, but here's my question. Is Gloria Steinem going to be doing your ceremony? Yes. How does one get Gloria Steinem to marry them?
1: Well, it helps if you're, if the person you're marrying has written a New York Times bestselling book called Bad Feminist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, we could just leave that one right there. All right. We'll, uh, we'll link that up in the show notes. What is on your nightstand?
1: On my nightstand right now is two nearly empty bottles of kombucha, a tripod, my paper calendar, my iPad, um, a magazine called Foreign Sons, and then a parquet catalog, which features some great, great art in it and something, an insert by Christopher Wool. So, Uh background. So it's a little hard to see. Okay. And eye patch for sleeping. um, The coolest digital clock I've ever seen, which Roxanne got me. Which at night you can turn the light completely off, and it projects on the ceiling. So the
0: light is
1: on the ceiling, which is incredible. Uh, A little plant that my friend Lisa Congdon. Uh, cut from my garden and started a new, um, put in a little um, vase that she had made. And so now it's rooted and it's growing. A box of tissues and a piece of ceramics that I made with a quote of Virginia Woolf.
0: You have the biggest, <laughs> you have the biggest nightstand I've ever seen in my life.
1: Actually not, it's just piled. It's, just,
0: it's piled. <laughs> it's piled. What does What does fulfillment look like for you at this stage of your life?
1: I feel very lucky as I've gotten older. Yesterday was my fifty ninth birthday, so
0: happy birthday!
1: You know, I was having dinner with Roxanne and another family member, and I made a toast and I said, "You know, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life." So I know that there's a lot of fear and doom and gloom and inequality and injustice, but I'm working really hard in my own life to help combat that, help eradicate the rape kit backlog, help eradicate sexual violence towards women, help to create more equality for everyone. And even with, with all of the injustice in the world, at the end of the day, I do feel like I'm doing as much as I possibly can to make things better. And that's a really important thing in my life. And, you know, for the first time in my life at, at 50, so I got married at 58. I mean, I was married before, but it didn't last. I feel like I've finally met the love of my life. And, you know, I came out when I was 50. So, you know, it's been a long time to get here. Mm -hmm. And so Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll quote David Lee Roth (laughs) on my podcast. We, I asked him what it felt like in the 1980s to be the biggest rock star in the world. You know, everybody, everybody all over the world knew him. He was, he was it. He was it. He's the it man of the moment and couldn't have possibly gotten any bigger. And he said to me that you have to be careful when you reach the top of the mountain, because you're almost, always alone it's really cold and there's only one direction and so he sort of warned that you know we all want to peak really fast you know make it but then what and so I've decided that this slow pace that I've taken with my life to get to where I've gotten is just fine for me and I don't really want to peak until I die until the day before (laughs) I die (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> David
0: <Porter's beak. laughs> Yeah. Right. And then check out David Lee Roth has got to be one of the most interesting characters ever. He's fascinating. He was just on uh CBS Sunday morning, uh, last week, uh, talking about his, I'm going to butcher this, but it's like Japanese painting, drawing things. I yeah. don't know what they're called.
1: Yeah, There
0: you go. There you go. And you know, it's nice to see, you know, we're roughly the same age. I'm 54. So like, I I remember David, David Lee Roth, you know? So seeing him, you know, as a mature man, that's painting is just, you know, it's, it's just so interesting. I love that. What is one thing that you have not gotten to in your life that if you don't get to this, you're going to have some massive regret?
1: Probably doing some sort of illustrated illustrated version of James Joyce's Ulysses.
0: Interesting. That one came out of left field. That's interesting. Why?
1: Yeah, because um, I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, if not now, when, you know, when Mm. do you start to do the things that you've always said you wanted to do? And so the reason I could say this fairly quickly is because it's on a list of things that I've written out, which are, if not now, when... Because you know you could keep saying I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, eventually, 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 and then you turn sixty, and it's like, what the fuck? I have to start, right.
0: <laughs> right?
1: So you know, James Joyce is one of my James Joyce is one of my favorite authors. I years and years and years ago went to Dublin for um, Bloomsday, which is the day that James Joyce's character Ulysses spends over the course of the book. And so I, you know, I had the James Joyce Ulysses breakfast and I went out to Sandy Mount Strand and did all these things. And, you know, it's really just one of my favorite books of all time. And it's, it's out of copyright. So, you know, I could do an illustrated version of it. And so that's what I've been thinking about doing. I
0: love that. I believe that people should do more things that they love to do and less of the things that they don't love to do. What are some things that you're currently doing that you really don't love to do and you would love to do less of?
1: Mm -hmm. Fulfilling obligations that I do to people please as opposed to please myself. I feel guilty if I don't say yes to people. I feel guilty if I don't say yes to my family for everything that they need and want. So I feel guilty a lot. That's what I'd like to stop feeling. I'd like to stop feeling guilty for not living up to people's expectations of me.
0: What do people often get wrong about you?
1: That I'm confident.
0: Mm, That one came quick. (laughs) What would your friends say is one of your superpowers?
1: I can write mirror backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I can write frontwards and backwards with both hands like a conductor at the same time.
0: That is a party trick. I love that. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? How do
1: you think the universe was created?
0: Do you have an answer?
1: No, but it would be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Um, okay, two more questions. What is your guilty pleasure?
1: My guilty pleasure is my wife's cooking. <laughs> no, she not it's not so much guilty pleasure. It's just that she cooks so much that I love to eat everything that she makes. Um, my guilty pleasure. Um, aside from eating her baked goods, would be watching reruns of Law & Order SVU, even though I've seen every single episode about 43 times.
0: That's awesome. I do that with the West Wing. Um, yeah. it's, th- it's therapy for me. Last question. We'll, we'll change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me?
1: What are you afraid of?
0: First answer that popped in my head is getting old. And if I unpack that, it would be dying. If I unpack that, it would be leaving, not being here to see my six year olds live a long, healthy life. You know, I was thinking the other day, my, my mom's in her 80s now. She's still in Queens. And I'm 54. She's still alive, and I still have a relationship with her. That math won't translate for my daughter. And so, you know, every time I could sneak some pushups in and a vegetable in me, I'm doing it for that reason. But that would be the answer. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, Debbie, this is everything that I hoped it would be. I am truly honored that you said yes again. Uh, this meant a lot to me. I knew this was going to be amazing. Um, do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people listening? Vote. <laughs> Vote. 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 Go votes. And if go it doesn't go vote. the way we
1: want to, we have to take it to the street.
0: I just, uh, I just took my uh, my what my wife. Uh, I was doing podcasts all morning. She just took our five year olds um, out to uh, to the voting booth because we wanted we wanted her to you know experience what it's like out there. So we had a uh, uh, a voting put her in a little voting outfit, and she went to the polls. Today and that's her. I'm voting with with mommy thing. Awesome, (laughs) beautiful. Debbie, thank you so much and congrats on the uh, wedding. Thank you, thank you, thank you,
1: thank you for including me. Thank
0: you. Bye bye. All right, thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game.